Our text for this morning is taken from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. It is good to see all of you. Uh, if you would like to be following along in the Pew Bibles as we work our way through this passage in Proverbs, uh, you can find that on page 528 in the Pew Bibles. And for those of you that have uh, young children in the service, we're very grateful that they are with us. And if you would like for them to follow along in the Jesus Storybook Bible, which looks like this, uh, the, the uh, story that I would recommend to you is actually called The Singer, and you can find that on page 228 uh, for yourself or for your children. And so we're continuing our sermon series this morning on biblical conflict resolution. And we began this series uh, a few weeks ago. And when we started it, we considered uh, where conflict begins. And we saw in James chapter 4 that at the center of every sinful conflict in our lives is our heart's idolatry. It's an out-of-control desire that we have for something other than God and His will in that moment. And we saw that it's, it's this conflict in our hearts between us and God, not us and the other person, that is overflowing into our relationships with other people. And we saw that James tells us that, that to those who are willing to acknowledge that it begins with this internal conflict with God, that he is willing to give us more and more grace and even to provide us the hope of the gospel. And that the hope of the gospel is what will empower us to change. And we saw in Colossians chapter 3 that our ability to honor God at all or to pursue peace in our relationships does not flow from our knowledge or even the application of biblical principles, but it flows out of the power of the gospel in our lives. And as Pastor Mark said, the key to biblical conflict resolution is a deeper appreciation and appropriation of the gospel in our lives. Last week in 1 Samuel, we looked at a conflict between David and King Saul, right? And we explored the different ways that we tend to respond sinfully when we're in the heat of conflict. And on the one hand, we were challenged to consider that some of us, when we come to conflict, we think about it as something to conquer. And so we're tempted to respond by looking for ways to attack the other person. And so we'll end up blaming others. We may even end up assaulting them, whether verbally or physically, in order to win this battle that we feel that we are in. And on the other hand, we saw that some of us see conflict as a problem that we want to avoid. And so we're tempted to respond to conflict, not by trying to attack, but by trying to escape. 
And what we'll do is we'll walk around in denial about the real issues that are going on in our lives, the real issues that are going on in our relationships. And what we'll end up doing is trying to find ways to flee from those relationships. We'll either avoid those people, avoid those situations, or in some cases, just cut those people and those relationships off completely. Neither one of these options honor God. And neither one of these options actually enable us to pursue peace. And this is why the gospel is so wonderful, is that it actually, as we are reconciled to God, provides us a new way. However, before we turn to our passage this morning, and we look at how, by God's grace, we can actually begin to embrace this new way of responding to conflict, this way of peace, I think it's really important for us to acknowledge that our tendency to look for ways to escape or to look for ways to attack is not simply an interesting aspect of our personalities, as though we happen to be an attacker or we happen to be an escaper, trying to kind of personality test ourselves in the midst of this biblical conflict resolution series. Our tendency toward these two attacking and escaping responses is proof of our heart's idolatry, of our sinful tendency, especially in the midst of conflict, to ignore God or to reject God in our lives. And what this means is that as we continue on this series over the next couple of weeks, and we talk about what Ken Sandy refers to as the four G's of peacemaking, go higher, get real, gently engage, and get together, these things are not simply four steps or techniques to conflict resolution. What these are are four descriptions of how the gospel is empowering us to walk in repentance and faith especially as we are responding to conflict in our relationships. And this morning in Proverbs, what we're going to see is that instead of following after our sinful patterns of attacking or escaping, the foundation of pursuing peace in our relationships is to bring God into the situation as we are responding to conflict. And that's where we're going to be again in Proverbs chapter 3. But before we dive in and we consider how does the gospel empower us to do this and what does it look like, would you take a moment and would you pray with me as we go to the Lord and ask for his help? Heavenly Father, thank you for this portion of your word, for preserving it down to this very day, for using it this morning in our lives. We ask that by your spirit, you would be illuminating our hearts, that you would be exposing our sinful tendencies, that you would be motivating us to confess to you our great need of you, to confess to even our own hearts your wonderful, holy, and good presence in our lives. Lord Jesus, we thank you for showing us the way of peace. Help us to follow you in the way of the cross as we submit the way in which we confront others in relationships uh, to you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So the way, the foundation of pursuing peace in our relationships is to bring God into the situation as you are responding to this conflict. And the first way that we do this, sounds very simple, is to bring God into the situation by simply acknowledging his presence. And you see that very clearly in verse 6. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And we're tempted, I think, when we read this and think about how it applies to conflict resolution, we might think this feels overly simplistic in our lives. But before we conclude that, I want to encourage you to take a moment and to think about a conflict that you experienced in your relationships this past week. A conflict between you and another coworker. A conflict between you and a neighbor, between your spouse uh, and yourself, between your children or your parents. Just think of a conflict that comes to mind. And the chances are that in the heat of that argument, in the heat of that fight, God was really the last thing on your mind. He was the last person that you were thinking about because the chances are that instead of turning our minds to the Lord and acknowledging his presence, we became consumed by our own thoughts. We became consumed by the thoughts of how this other person had hurt us or wronged us, or we began to get consumed with how we were going to respond sinfully, whether by attacking them or trying to escape this situation. And what we find, and probably what you have found this past week, is that the heat of conflict in our lives has a tendency to collapse our world down to the size of our problems. And that it's the only thing that we can think about. And so the beginning of pursuing peace is this remarkable movement in our hearts to turn our eyes away from ourselves and to acknowledge God's presence. What's wonderful here is that the Hebrew word in Proverbs 3 here that's translated acknowledge literally means to know. But this type of knowledge that this word is alluding to is not knowledge that's simply intellectual knowledge or assent to God's existence. It's a relational kind of knowledge, one that comes through shared life, one that comes through fellowship. And I would argue that probably a better translation of this particular passage is, in all of your conflict, in all of your ways, have fellowship with God. And this proverb is not really interested in just leaving it there, because if we're going to truly acknowledge God's presence in our conflicts, then we do have to have a clear understanding of his character. I want you to notice in verse 5, it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. We see this clearly that the proverb writer is not speaking about God generally or abstractly when he uses the words that is translated, the Lord. You see, whenever you come to this type of language in your English Bible and you see the words, the Lord, completely capitalized, what that means is that the translators are trying to tell you that this is a stand-in for the personal name of God. We might pronounce that name Yahweh. And this is the name that God revealed to Moses after he had delivered Israel from Egypt. In Exodus chapter 34, this is what the Lord says. It says, the Lord, Yahweh, passed before Moses and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Acknowledging God's presence in the midst of our conflict means remembering that the God with whom we have fellowship is not simply holy and just, mighty and powerful, but merciful and gracious. That this God with whom we have fellowship in the midst of our conflict, he himself is slow to anger. He himself is abounding in steadfast love, who delights to forgive sin, but who will by no means clear the wrongdoing of the guilty. And it's this true knowledge of what God is actually like, not thinking about him abstractly, but as he really has revealed himself, this true knowledge of his character produces reverence for God in the midst of our conflicts. I want you to notice in verse 7, where the proverb writer continues kind of ruminating on this idea. He says, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Fear Yahweh and turn away from evil. I want you to notice again this writer's emphasis. He's not saying fear God. What he is emphasizing again is God's personal name. This in my opinion, completely reorients how we think about God's presence with us in the midst of conflict. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland reflects on this aspect of God's glory, and here's what he says. When God himself sets the terms on what his glory is, he surprises us into wonder. Our deepest instincts expect God to be thundering and gavel-swinging, judgment-releasing. We expect that the bent of God's heart is to be one of retribution to our waywardness. And yet what we see in Exodus 34 stops us in our tracks. The bent of God's heart is toward mercy. His glory is his goodness. His glory is his lowliness. Fear of the Lord is to revere him in light of who he really is and the kind of relationship that he has with us. Because first and foremost, he has been merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love to us. First and foremost, he has forgiven our sin and been faithful to us even when we have not been faithful to him. And how much more is this true and revealed in Christ? As the Apostle John says, the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. At Christmas time, we reflect on the fact that Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. And this is the first step toward bringing God into our situations when we experience conflict in our relationships, to acknowledge his presence, to have a clear understanding of his character, and to revere that character in the midst of our conflict. And perhaps my kind of favorite illustration of this is found in the book of Joshua. 
You'll remember that how the book of Joshua begins is that after Moses had died and not entered the promised land, God raised up a new leader for Israel. His name is Joshua. And Joshua was called to lead Israel into the promised land. And the first conflict that Joshua experienced was the city of Jericho. And so you can kind of imagine Joshua kind of in a sleepless night, nervous about this conflict that he's about to be participating in, whether or not he's going to win, whether or not they're going to escape, whatever is going to happen. And it says in Joshua chapter 5, it says, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our enemies? And the man said, No. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? What does this have to do with biblical conflict resolution? Well, as you experience conflict in your relationships, perhaps we should take the posture of Joshua and recognize there are not two parties involved in this conflict. There are three parties involved. There's you, there's the person that you're in conflict with, and there's God himself. And the question that Joshua had to wrestle with, the reason he fell to his face is that he recognized the question isn't, is God on your side? The question should be, are you on God's side? That not only must we acknowledge God's presence as we're responding to conflict, we need to also trust God's wisdom. If you look back at verse 5 in Proverbs, it says it very clearly. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. But what does this actually mean in the midst of conflict? How do we trust God when our relationships seem to be falling apart? And what's great about how this proverb is written is that it actually is constructed in a way to teach us this. Because you see, in the book of Proverbs, and this is not just true of Proverbs 3, it's true of almost every proverb in the book of Proverbs, it's written in this poetic form known as parallelism. Parallelism is writing in a way that's kind of like a riddle. And so what it's doing is it's encouraging you to look at these lines of poetry and ask, how does this line inform the other one? Or how does this line contrast with the one before it? Or how does this line kind of expand on the idea? And the purpose of parallelism is to invite meditation. Not a quick reading of God's word, but kind of this meditative reading upon God's word. And if you look at at verse 5 and we consider the parallelism, here's what it says. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. We see a parallelism here where the word trust is being kind of expanded upon or compared to this other verb translated, do not lean on your own understanding. And this is actually a great translation of this phrase because this idea of leaning in this Hebrew word is associated with the leaning that a shepherd would do on his staff or the leaning that a soldier would do on his spear in the midst of battle. The, the image, I think, is quite striking, right? It helps us see what trusting in the Lord feels like, right? Trusting in the Lord in the midst of our conflict 
feels like leaning on his wisdom, resting the full weight of those circumstances on God. But I want you to notice here, right? The proverb is not really interested in telling us how to trust God. He is rather kind of revealing to us why we fail to do this in the first place. We, do, we fail to do this. We fail to lean on God in the midst of our conflict because we trust our own interpretations more than God. Because this is exactly what the Hebrew word that's translated understanding means. To have understanding is to be able to discern the facts about a situation and then to know how to properly respond. We might say in English that this type of person is a person who's very insightful. And our problem, the writer of this proverb is saying, is that in the midst of conflict, instead of trusting God's interpretation of our circumstances, we tend to lean on our own interpretation of the situation. And if you think about the conflicts that you experienced this last week, it makes a lot of sense. It makes sense to, to you why you would find it easy to justify your sinful responses, to justify why you attacked that person, to justify why you ran away and sought to escape. Because based on the interpretation your interpretation of the facts, that really was the right decision, was it not? We are trusting not the facts themselves, but our interpretation of the facts. And I would argue that the, the writer of this proverb wants us to dig even deeper with our meditation on this passage, because in reality, the real reason that this is a tendency of our heart in the first place isn't just because we are trusting our own interpretations more than God, but that we are trusting our own abilities more than God. I want you to look at verse 7 here, where the proverb says, Be not wise in your own eyes. Ultimately, it is not about what we are thinking about our circumstances, but about what we are thinking about ourselves. To be wise in our own eyes means to believe that everyone else in that conflict that you are in is less capable than you of discerning what is actually wrong. That in your hurt, in your pain, you are elevating yourself in your own heart and you're bestowing upon yourself the status of judge and jury and executioner. And here's how it feels in the moment. If the other people in this conflict would just recognize that you're better than them, then they would clearly see the right way forward. And it just happens to be aligned with your interpretation of the facts. And what we discover is that at the root of why we struggle to trust God is not because he has given us poor reasons to trust him, but because in the midst of our conflicts, we are often taken to pride. That in the middle of our conflict, we discover our heart's tendency to follow Adam and Eve and not Jesus. You remember, right, in Genesis chapter 3, that as Adam and Eve were tempted by the serpent to take the fruit that God had commanded them not to eat of, here's what it says. 
The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. Here's the key. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Do you hear the pattern? They believed the serpent's lie. They rationalized their own interpretation of the facts. They trusted in their own ability to discern right and wrong. And the way that this passage kind of sums it up is it says, in short, they wanted to be like God. Often, when we are in the midst of conflict, we're tempted to think, if I was in the garden, I would know better. I would have responded differently. And our conflicts reveal, even this past week, that we're more interested often in being God rather than trusting God in our lives. So what does this mean in our lives? How, how does this actually help us bring God into our situations? Well, I think what it, what it means is that if we're going to acknowledge God's presence and we want to produce in our own hearts a desire to trust him and not ourselves, our initial posture in any conflict is not to confess the wrongdoings of others, but to confess our need of God. We need to confess and, and make it a habit of confessing that we are human beings. That not because of sin, but because of the fact that we are creatures, that we do not have all the answers that we are finite beings, that God created us to receive his revelation to be able to discern right and wrong, wise and foolish. We need to confess our human limitations. We also need to confess that we have a tendency because of our sin nature toward spiritual blindness. This is especially true when we are in the middle of the hurt and the pain of a fight. That our, our hearts will long to be king or queen in that moment. Long to control the circumstance. Long to escape the conflict. And instead, we need to confess our tendency, not just because of need, human limitations, but because we are spiritually blind in those moments. And it's only as we do that as we acknowledge God's presence, as we confess our need of God's wisdom, that God will empower us to follow him in the way of peace. I want you to look again at verses 6 and 7, and we'll just read them as, as they are written. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Do you see this promise that's nestled in this proverb in verse 6? The proverb says, he will, make your, he will make straight your path. Or maybe more kind of directly translated, he will direct your path. 
This is such a wonderful promise for us to meditate on because what it's saying is that God is committed, especially in the midst of our conflicts. He is committed to helping us with the conflicts that we find ourselves in. And this verb that is translated, he will make straight your paths, is the type of verb that we call imperfect. It means that this verb is not something that's one and done. It's not like God is just going to give you his wisdom once and direct your path once, but if you come back and you ask for it again, he's going to look at you and say, I already gave you what you asked for. Why are you coming back again? An imperfect verb here is saying, as often as we come back to God, as often as we acknowledge his presence, as often as we lean on his wisdom, God has promised that he will help us. He will direct our paths continually and faithfully, no matter how many times it takes. He promises to do this not so that we would avoid conflict, but so that we would avoid evil in the midst of conflict. Do you see that in verse 7? He doesn't say, be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord and avoid conflict. He says, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. This proverb is making a connection between our reverence for the Lord and our ability to turn away from evil in the midst of the conflicts that are inevitable in our lives. Instead of falling back into our sinful habits, whether attacking people or trying to escape from conflict, God directs us in the gospel, not just to avoid evil, but to put it to death in our lives. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 3. Starting in verse 3, he says, You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. There is too much there to unpack this morning, but did you catch the essence of it? Right? The hope of the gospel in the midst of our conflict is that when we bring God into our situation, when we acknowledge his presence, as we trust in his wisdom, we're not simply developing new habits in our conflicts. God is giving us a new identity. As we are able now by the Spirit to put to death our old ways of approaching conflict and putting on the new ways that look more like a new person, because the reality is, is that by the Spirit, we are able to do this. Because by the Spirit, we are new creatures. We are not slaves to sin. We have been set free to holiness, to blamelessness, to be able to walk according to God's wisdom. Not just to avoid evil, but on the positive, to walk the paths of peace. In verse 6, he says, he will make straight your path. And it's here that I think we need to admit that if we're going to do this, if we're going to bring God into our situations, it means the death of our old ways of doing things. We actually have to give up 
that attacking habit. We actually have to give up that escaping habit and we need to embark on new and uncharted territory in our lives. As Ken Sandy writes in his book, Resolving Everyday Conflict, we need to ask ourselves, am I willing to follow God wherever he leads me in pursuit of peace, even if that path looks difficult? Make no mistake, pursuing peace in your relationships is some of the hardest paths you may have to walk. The gospel teaches us and it shows us that the path to peace in our relationships is not the way of glory. It is the way of the cross. And while this may be new ground for us, the good news is, is that we are not blazing this trail. We are following in the footsteps of Christ, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Here's what it says about Jesus in Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And in my mind, there may not be a more striking illustration of what it looks like to follow Jesus than the trial of Amber Geiger. Some of you may remember that in 2019, Amber Geiger, a former police officer in Dallas, Texas, was convicted of the murder of Botan Jean. And according to Amber's testimony, after a long shift, she entered Botham's apartment, believing that it was her own apartment. And so when she was startled by Botham, she drew her gun and she shot and she killed this man in his own living room. And the details of this story are truly tragic. But during the trial, as Amber's sentence was being given, they allowed for what's called a victim impact statement to be given by the family. And Botham's younger brother, Brant, stood up and gave what is an unbelievable testimony to biblical conflict resolution, to the gospel, in the midst of what are, was probably the hardest day of his family's life, of his life, up to that point. Here's what Brandt's statement says. Amber, I don't want to say twice or for the hundredth time what you've done or how much you've taken from us. I think you know that. But I can speak for myself. I forgive you. And I know that if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing, something that my brother would have wanted. I love you as a person, and I don't wish anything bad to happen to you. And then Brant stepped down from his podium and he asked the judge if he could give Amber, his brother's killer, a hug. You can watch this on YouTube if you want to later. It is remarkable. And we find this story incredible because we know that such a response to hurt and to pain and to relational conflict is not natural. It's supernatural. It is a testimony to the power of the gospel. In this story, we see a young man 
in the midst of deep pain, acknowledging God's presence. This God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Here we see a young man trusting in God's wisdom and not his own wisdom. And most importantly, here we see a young man following Jesus in the way of the cross, pursuing peace even where peace seems impossible. So what does this mean for for our lives? It means as we go into this week and we experience the inevitable conflict that will arise in our relationships, it means to acknowledge God's presence and to trust his wisdom is to follow Jesus in that way of the cross. Because only Jesus perfectly acknowledged God's presence in every conflict in his life. Only Jesus perfectly trusted the Father's wisdom in the midst of every fight he found himself in. And only Jesus perfectly walked the path of peace and reconciliation. And our great hope is that as we are united to Christ by faith, that by the power of the Holy Spirit that Christ has given to his people, we might actually live that same kind of life. A life that we see in verse 8 of Proverbs, a life that is truly blessed. It will be healing to your flesh, the proverb says. It will be refreshment to your bones. And so where do we begin when we go to pursue peace? Not to attack and not to escape. We do so by bringing God into our situation. And it's as we do that, that we will be empowered to be able to see how our conflict is a window to the gospel. That we'll be able to experience the gospel in a way that we haven't before and discover that while the paths of peace are the most painful, that the way of the cross will actually lead to the crown of glory. We have to remember that Jesus did not stay in the grave. He rose from the dead, and that resurrection hope is what informs how we think about the pain and the suffering that we may even experience when we are pursuing peace in our relationships and in that conflict. That the way of the cross, or I should say the way to the crown, is not to avoid or to attack, but to go through the cross in pursuit of peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for all that you have done to make peace with us. Thank you, Jesus, for taking the cup of God's wrath in our place and giving us the promise of fellowship forever with you. In the midst of our conflicts, Father, by your spirit, would you empower us to follow you, to acknowledge your presence and to trust your wisdom so that we would put to death that which is evil in us and actually pursue peace in our relationships. May this coming week we be a testimony in the ways in which we approach conflict to the gospel. May we show forth the beauty and the glory of your goodness. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.